Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and Patrick Farrell, as always. Paddy, how are you this week? I'm positively fantastic, Gary. It is a relatively foggy day here in London. Woke up this morning, Saturday, for those people wondering. Woke up and it was fucking, you know, like I have a balcony. Couldn't see out my balcony at all. Like you've been on it. The balcony is maybe two foot, you know, <laughs> and past that two foot, couldn't see anything. So it was quite strange, but it's kind of clearing up now today. Um, but anyway, look, you're not here to f- listen to my life. You're here to listen to Gary's life. Gary, how's life uh, for you at the moment? It's very good. I'm at home in Kerry, County Kerry, beautiful Killarney, on psychiatry placement. So I have four weeks of psychiatry placement, some community, some inpatient in the hospital. I am interested in psychiatry. I like all kind of neural brain, mind stuff. So I'm trying to convince myself to be a psychiatrist because it would allow me much better work-life balance than if I tried to do anything surgical related. And yeah, so that's my current mission, to convince myself to be a psychiatrist. And uh, that would be way better for me and triage than if I was a surgeon, so. <laughs> yeah, well, surgery is the chad. Fucking, you know, just go in, cut people up, done. Yeah, 80 hours a week, smoking cigarettes, no food, unreal. Barely any bedside manner as well. Fantastic. Oh, just cursing, spitting. Yeah, pure butcher boy. Sweating away, you know, cutting other people, doing those like, you know, triple fatality surgeries. You cut yourself, you kill the patient, and then you fucking cut your assistant's hand, kill everyone, you know? Unbelievable. Leave tools in the person, everything. Your watch, oh, fuck, where's my watch gone? It's in the patient you were just cutting. And your goal. Anyway, look, that's... (laughs) Beside the point, today we're talking about foundational health management, right? That sounds a little bit weird, but effectively you want to cover some of the foundational practices that you can engage in as an individual that will hopefully mitigate disease, illness, injury, potentially, all that kind of stuff that we would you know, consider ill health, right? Now, as we say with all of these podcasts, look, I'm an idiot. Gary's a, a trainee doctor, so take what we're... Uh, talking about with a, a grain of salt, right? Um, we're not experts. I like this stuff. Gary, you're interested in this stuff as well. So we're talking about it, right? It's obviously something that's very relevant to the populations that we talk to because this is effectively the realm that coaching falls into. You know, all of the stuff we're doing now potentially helps the individual longer term, right? Like if I'm advising someone to eat a load of saturated fat to get their ca- calories up, that's potentially not setting them up for good health down the line, right? So what we talk to people about now, you know, can potentially set them up for good health down the line. But what are the things that we're, we should be focusing on? Where should our attention be when we're talking about this stuff? Now, some of the stuff falls in the realm of the, the, the kind of stuff that we talk about with our clients. Some of the stuff is just good practices in general. But you'll see as we go through this, there is actually a lot And there's a lot more than just, oh, your diet, your training, you know, like there's a lot more to this that you can be like, oh, that's actually a foundational health practice because it actually helps X, Y, and Z. And a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think of that as a health practice. And you'll kind of see what I mean as we get through the episode, right? Do you have anything to say, Gary, to introduce this topic? No, let's get stuck in. Let's get stuck in, right? Now, the first thing we have to consider when we're talking about this is like, why are we looking at this at an individual level? right? Because a lot of these questions, they're societal problems, okay? And we have kind of two lenses in the society that we work in to talk about this stuff. We have 
what the individual does and then what the we'll call it the government or organizations mandate right and that can be through either not mandating some things or not uh taxing some things or you know it can be through what they actually do and then what they also don't do or don't look at look after right so we can look at it from those two perspectives the societal like you know top down level if you will or we can look at it from the individual now in the realm that we fall into and the general health and fitness world falls into we generally tend to focus on the individual right because i don't know about you gary but i don't really have the potential other than my vote to influence how the government works right and like we can idealize or look towards something and be like oh we would like society to look like x y or z but ultimately i'm not influencing society directly right now however to whatever extent i can i can influence myself i can do certain things that help myself right so when you're going through this episode realize that some of these things like they are obviously influenced by the society that you find yourself in the socioeconomic status that you find yourself in all of those other things but that doesn't stop the fact that you still have to look at this as an individual right like you can't just blame society if you haven't maximized yourself as an individual right now you haven't maximized the things that you can actually be doing like yeah for sure for certain populations for certain people some of these things are going to be a hell of a lot more difficult and we've talked about that previously in terms of you know say the food environment like if i'm saying oh yeah eat healthy and you live in a a food swamp or a, a food desert that's going to be a lot harder right but there are still changes that you can make to align your diet into a more healthful or health promoting diet right and until you do that you can't really be like oh well you know the reason i'm i'm failing at this is because there's too many mcdonald's around right like that's definitely contributing to uh, making it harder for you but there are still things that you can do right now is that the whole answer to the question fuck no right but it's the answer to the question that we can focus on okay do you have anything to say on that gary yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, like, obviously, the the higher level environmental, governmental, etc., influences have a, have a very potent role on health, and I think that it's something that you have to acknowledge and that needs to be acknowledged at that level. But at the same time, as an individual, you have to ask yourself, what can I actually control? And you can see sometimes when people begin these discussions about higher level upstream influences um, on health that they almost strip people of agency. And an easy example of that is that, you know, telling people that they shouldn't worry about their weight or losing weight because it's primarily the result of the food environment and food policy, the food industry, et cetera. And while there's a grain of truth in that or a lot of truth in that, and that the primary determinants over the last 50 years in increasing obesity is the change in the food environment, it doesn't mean that the individual does not have any power to change how they eat. And very often the way that people use language when discussing that topic, they actually do sort of strip people of agency. Because if you tell people that um, they are the way they are because of higher order influences and that they're the most important things and you don't tell them what they can do, then you sort of feel a little bit helpless. Um, and, And that's clearly not what we would want on this podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, you're hopefully someone who's trying to take charge of your health, to make steps in the right direction. So even though there may be influences that are beyond your control, you should still try to bring as much as you can 
within the realm of your control and do your best to deal with it. Okay. On the on the other on the other hand, it can still be harmful to think that you can control everything, you know. Um, so there does come a point where that perspective of recognizing the higher order influences, the upstream influences are incredibly important. An example of that would be during the pandemic, for example, a lot of people there, even if you don't even consider respiratory viruses, you just consider the impact of lockdowns and things like that. A lot of people found their mental health suffering. They might've had maybe low level of social anxiety when reintegrating into society again, when they were going out in groups, et cetera. And, you know, that is clearly the majority of the determinant of that is due to government policy or action related to the virus. Okay. It's not necessarily something that you was a personal failure or anything. So if you were to say that, oh, this is all my fault and get into that cycle of kind of self-criticism and over responsibility for things that aren't within your control, that could potentially make that situation worse. So on each individual health determinant, you have to ask yourself how much of it is within your control and how much of it can you bring into your control? Because it might be the case that at the moment that you feel like something's beyond your control. For example, if a supermarket doesn't stock a particular food, but could you control that situation by going to a different supermarket, for example? And the answer to that might be yes, or it might be beyond your budget. So ask yourself, what is within your control? What could you bring within your control? And other than, as you say, using your vote um, and discussing with others, don't get too upset about the higher level things if they're not in your favor at this point in time. Mm. Yeah, like I think the, the whole pandemic was a, a good exercise in showing people how much is within their control versus how much is you know, government policy, government, whatever you want to call the stuff that government do, uh, what they're actually doing to influence society. Like I think in America, the average weight gain for a, a millennial, so they're this, this kind of like 30 fucking whatever age, 25 to 35, something like that. I don't know, the millennial category um, was like 50 pounds. That was the average weight gain. 50 pounds is like 25 kilos. <laughs> you know and like that's you know whatever you can say oh fucking that's that's a a lot of weight to gain but that was pretty much in response to what the government had done right now obviously there's a virus going around as well that influenced people's behaviors they didn't get out to exercise blah 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 you know there are other things that are feeding into that but it is a good experiment to show like okay what the government does can influence what people do and it sounds so so straightforward, but you know, here was an, an experiment that showed it all, right? Anyway, look, we're not going to get into the too deep into the weeds with that. I just want to start this episode by saying that some things are in your control, some things aren't. Some things are still in your control, but due to the things that aren't in your control, it makes the things that are in your control a lot harder. You know, like we always talk, you know, privately, and we've talked about it on the podcast about the topic of like free will, like, do you actually have free will? And I think both myself and Gary would consider people to have free will. I think free will is a thing. I think it is environmentally constrained though. You know, like I think your environment has a lot more impact on your free will or the ability for you to uh, enact or exhibit your free will than a lot of people would actually like to say that it does. You know, like you can say that you're a, a bastion of health and you're like, this is, you know, I'm, I'm a really like healthy individual, but it might not be the case in a different environment. For example, I'll give myself as the example, 
I love training. I actually just really enjoy training. I really enjoy the process of resistance training, right? But the reason I enjoy the process of resistance training is because I can see that progression, right? So I'm like, oh, next week, I'm going to add a little bit more weight here, or I'm going to add a rep here, whatever. But if you take away that progression model for me, I actually don't really like uh, training all that much, right? If I'm not seeing the stepwise incremental improvements, I'm like, ugh, like, yeah, it's enjoyable or whatever in the moment. And obviously certain things are more enjoyable, like jujitsu is more enjoyable, but I don't think I would enjoy jujitsu as much if I wasn't seeing myself progress, right? And that was something that was changed for me during the pandemic where I'm like, okay, I've actually got an X amount of weights to use. I'm maxed out on that. I'm not seeing these weekly or monthly progressions. And while, yeah, we can bring in different progression models, there comes a point where I've like, I've tapped out on that exercise. So exercise for me, became less enjoyable right so again the environment constrained my ability to exhibit my free will in this case my ability to train and actually want to train so obviously it works in other ways right before we get stuck into this guy do you have anything to final to say to introduce the, the topic no that's all good fantastic right now foundational health topic or foundational health habits or whatever you want to call these things that we're going to discuss most people are aware of, you know, the general healthy habit stuff, right? You know, we've talked about it before. It's the stuff that we talk about all the time. You know, you've got your basic fundamental stuff. You've got your diet, your training, your sleep, and your stress management, right? And that's the stuff that most people would consider be like, okay, but if you get those four kind of pillars sorted, you're in a good position, right? And we're going to dive a little bit deeper into each of those. But before we do, I want to also layer on top of that even though you think that's all you're doing in terms of a you know, foundational health practice, there are also other foundational health practices that are often discussed as a tangent to those um, other, you know, those baseline health habits, but it's kind of almost assumed that you're looking after these other things as well, which we're not going to just assume that you're, you're looking after this stuff because unless we actually talk about it, you don't know what we're talking about right? and what I am talking about here is the kind of psychosocial aspects of health and then also the spiritual right and again you might be looking at spiritual from the context of organized religion or religiosity or whatever but there's more to spiritual than just organized religion right and even into like questions like what happens to you after you die like what are your beliefs around that you know are they beneficial beliefs for your health like do they cause you to you know, do stuff that is actually aligned with healthful practices, or do you become completely nihilistic and go, ah, it doesn't fucking matter what I do anyway, I'm going to die and I'm just going to go to atoms and who cares, right? So we have to look at those things because again, it does actually influence our health, right? So before we get into that, I actually want to bring it back and, you know, talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs or, you know, Maslow's motivational model. Right. And the reason I want to talk about this, and you know, most people have seen it, and like it's not like I don't think it's the be all and end all of a uh, you know model that teaches you how to work in the world or navigate the world, but it does lay some sort of foundational thinking for you know how you should potentially think about your your health management, right? And if you've seen Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, it's a pyramid, right? At the base of that pyramid, we've got psychological or sorry, I could say physiological needs, right? And that's kind of covered by the stuff that we're talking about when we're talking about, you know, health, you know, when we're talking about diet, training, you know, sleep, all those kind of things. A lot of those fall into the realms of like 
physiological needs. Now, some of the physiological needs, you know, they are much more deep than that, like oxygen, like you need air, like it's a physiological need, like as a human, you, you need air, right? And again, you'll see this if you ever fucking have nearly drowned, you'll see how ingrained that motivation and that hierarchy of needs, how much of a baseline need that is because everything else shuts down for your body. No, you're not thinking, you're completely present. You're in the moment when you're drowning because all that matters to you as an organism is get the fuck out of the water, right? Get some air into your lungs, right? So there are obviously more important needs than others. And this, again, starts this thought process of there's clearly a hierarchy of needs here. Some of them are really foundational and some of them are, you know, still foundational, but less important, right? And there are also other things in this uh, pyramid. There's safety needs, right? And again, I think most people would be aware of what these are in terms of you you want to live in an environment where you're not getting shot at, you're not, you know, in Afghanistan or anything like that. Like you need to be safe. You know, your house is not getting bombed, et cetera, et cetera, right? But there's also, again, gradations within that because you could live in a, you know, say for example, a Western world, but you know, you don't feel like you're in a safe environment. You know, there's a lot of robbery or violent crime in your area, right? Or potentially the people that you hang around with are just not good people. Or, you know, I don't know, you're in an abusive relationship or whatever, like you don't feel safe. So again, gradations within that. The next thing that's on that hierarchy of needs or that motivational model is, you know, your needs for belonging and love, right? And again, this is often stuff that we just go, oh yeah, like, you know, that's, we assume that's looked after, right? But oftentimes it's not. And it's really apparent, again, because I live in London, talk to different people. Like a lot of people will be, you know, working for home, working from home, for example, and they basically don't talk to anyone else apart from their work colleagues all day, right? And you know, maybe they go to the gym, you know, and you're, you're, they're in a position where they don't really feel a sense of belonging, right? And they don't really feel love because, you know, they're on their own. Yeah, all they do is work. Maybe they fucking play PlayStation in the evening or whatever, but they're not integrated into their society. They don't feel that sense of belonging. They don't feel that sense of love. You know, like we've kind of talked about this before, but generally speaking, two is the fundamental unit of humans, right? Like a single human on their own doesn't really work all that well right? Like, yeah, we can survive on our own, but it seems to be that two, you need at least two humans to actually feel like a complete human, right? And the Greeks had an idea about this where, you know, the gods basically had split our soul in two and, you know, you were kind of destined to wander the earth until you found your counterpart, the other half of your soul, right? That's effectively where in the West we got that idea or that idea of soulmates from, where it's like, it comes from that Greek mythology. And again, that's probably influenced by, you know, Persian mythology as well, because, you know, Greek and Persian mythology, they, they often intertwine. We don't necessarily always acknowledge that, but they do often quite intertwine. So it probably comes from that, you know, it might even be a proto-Indo-European belief, but either way, we have this belief that you have a soulmate, you have another half to your soul. And it kind of speaks to this topic of, Two is the fundamental unit of humans, right? So you need to. I don't care if it's a guy and a guy, a guy and a girl, a girl and a girl, whatever the fuck, it actually doesn't matter. It just seems that two is the unit, right? And then our next one on this uh, motivational hierarchy is esteem needs. Like 
self-esteem we might call it and we'll touch on that a little bit later on as well and then after that we kind of move into growth needs right all those ones we've talked about are deficiency needs right like you need to have these or you will feel deficient right after that we move into the growth needs which are stuff that we need to actually do to actually you know push forward in society push forward as a society become the best human that we can possibly become right and there's a quote i actually don't know where i read it um before but you know it's kind of like a when we're talking about self-actualization which is the top of the the pyramid there is a quote and i've said it to you before gary where it's like hell is to meet the person you could have been at death and to realize you are not even in his shadow right like there's clearly a best version of you right that you could become and you kind of want to be working towards that you know like you don't want to again meet this person on your deathbed and realize that you are literally a minuscule percentage of that person like you did not reach your potential right and this is why we focus a lot on getting the deficiency needs ticked off you know because if we don't get those ticked off you're never going to be able to actually transcend. You're never going to be able to self-actualize, right? So anyway, getting into that a little bit deeper, we have cognitive needs. And again, cognitive, you know, you kind of know what they're, they're talking about there. Like, are you being mentally stimulated? Are you actually thinking beyond just the like, I know basic maths and I know how to speak English. You know, it's like, what's your brain built for? Have you maximized that? Are you challenging yourself? Are you expanding your scope of cognitive development right aesthetic needs and again these are environmental personal the whole shebang right humans like a certain look (laughs) right there's no two ways about it and we want to kind of aspire towards that and then once we've done that we get into this kind of self-actualization which is becoming your best self and then we get into this kind of transcendence which is not just maximizing the individual it's going beyond the individual right? Like, what are you doing to advance humanity? What are you doing to advance, you know, society as a whole? What are you doing to advance your community? What are you doing to advance your family? You know, like we can look at that transcendence from multiple levels, right? Before I move back to just talking about those physiological needs, do you have anything to say on that kind of hierarchy of needs, that model? Yeah, just some kind of overarching notes. Like one would be that uh, when when it was initially introduced, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, people kind of interpreted it as, you know, that you needed to finish one step before you moved on to the next. And to some degree, that is true in a sense that, like, if you're totally hypoxic, to use your example previously, clearly anything else is not going to be important or you're not going to be able to move on to it. However, the reality is that f- for the most part, you just need to mostly satisfy the need below before moving on to the one above okay it needs to be mostly satisfied but it doesn't need to be 100 percent. an easy example of that would be you know if you're in total starvation you know there's war in your country and there's a famine and everything clearly that that's going to be your most pressing need you're going to be doing everything you can to seek food and nothing else is going to gain your attention however if you're in a mild calorie deficit, like a lot of our listeners, you're still technically at a deficiency of nutrition to some degree, but you're still able to maintain attention on higher order needs, such as safety, love and belonging, etc. 
And what's interesting there is that you can even see that like as bodybuilders get deeper and deeper into their deficits and deeper into stages of starvation, you can see how they're willing to accept larger trade-offs in some of the um, higher order needs. For example, belonging and love, they might actually sacrifice their relationships a bit because food seeking and their current state of starvation is actually their biggest priority, both psychologically and physiologically. And so, friend doesn't generally help with the whole, like, you know, integrating them inside. That's true. That's true as well. Um, yeah, they didn't mention uh, hormonal needs. Maybe that's in physiological. Um, but yeah, and, and the other thing that you see here is the fact that an insult um, to one of your needs um, generally it produces a realization, but not for so long. An, ex an easy example of this would be, um, you know, when someone experiences a loss, for example, in their family, you know, someone falls ill and suddenly they realize what really matters. Okay. But they've moved down um, towards the deficiency needs, such as love and belonging. They realize the importance of that because there's been a dent in the armor there. But three months down the line, you know, when the person is well again, they might stop calling to see that person as often. They're no longer occupying as many of their thoughts. And they're back to caring about the things that they previously used to, such as their uh, personal career goals, uh, maybe financial goals, etc. And that's normal. You know, that's a, a normal part of human life that if something is intact, you're not going to be attending to it as much. So that's kind of just really important to understand, to understand those two separate things. The first being that you don't have to have 100% at any given level to be, care about the next one. And then the second one that you might at certain points in your life move down in terms of the needs that you're tending to um, if there's some sort of insult or injury uh, to that need while being able to kind of forget about it to some degree again in the future when it's intact again. 100%. And this also brings us to a kind of thought process here where like these needs are kind of like baseline requirements. Right. And as we said, there's kind of gradations within those. Right. And again, I, I like the idea of a pyramid because it's a nice metaphor or analogy uh, in terms of it actually allows you to think, OK, well, if I build a sturdier base, that means that the higher order things or the, the, the things that are higher up on this kind of hierarchy like they can actually be sturdier. They can actually be more fully actualized, I suppose you might say, right? Um, and this is interesting to kind of think about because we don't need to build an extremely sturdy base to be able to tall or build a very tall building, right? Like, yeah, the sturdier the base, the better, right? But if we're talking about the kind of health needs here that we're going to be moving on to in a second, you don't need to be 100% perfect. However, you have to be willing to understand that there is a little bit of a trade-off here as well, right? Like a lot of people, they're kind of aiming towards this self-actualization. They're trying to be the best they can be in their career, for example, or as a family person or, you know, whatever it is that mean, like self-actualization means for them, but they're not actually looking after themselves, right? Like they're not actually fulfilling their physiological needs, they're on this kind of, okay, I've just barely ticked the box with physiological needs. We have a, you know, energetic requirement, you know, we don't photosynthesize or whatever, right? So we have an energetic requirement, which means you have to eat food. And yeah, you can tick the box with eating food and go, yeah, I've eaten enough calories, but that doesn't mean that that physiological needs box 
is 100% ticked, right? And a lot of people are trying to achieve self-actualization or this kind of transcendence, and they haven't had a good night's sleep in you know two years they haven't had a good high quality meal in the last month you know like they haven't drank enough water in the last couple of days you know so while there is this kind of okay you don't need to 100 percent have this you know physiological needs or whatever else ticked off there are still gradations within that and the sturdier you build your base the better to an extent right and do you have anything else to say on that gary especially around like kind of that kind of congruency yeah and this is something that we actually kind of use in in our everyday language a little bit in the sense that there's what you basically want to achieve as you move towards self-actualization is that there's more and more of an overlap between who you actually are or who you see yourself as or who you see yourself as and your ideal self Okay, and this would be referred to as congruence. Okay, so Carl Rogers used to talk about this. He's a book called On Being a Person, I believe, and he talks about congruence. Okay, so you could look at someone who's incongruent if they were, they had an idea of themselves that they'd like to be, the person they would like to be, and they're basically not doing any of it, you know, so they know, they feel that being healthy, um, being fit, being strong, reading regularly you know loving their neighbor etc that all these things were were ideals that they'd like to be aiming at but they weren't actually actualizing it Mm. any of it or they might even notice that like and we've talked about it before they're like oh i view myself as someone who's clear-minded or you know good and under pressure or whatever and then when they aren't looking after some of these baseline needs they're not that person, you know? So it might not be a case that they're like, oh, I should be doing these things and I'm not doing these things. They might notice that this is the person that I see myself as. And then when I don't do these things, I'm actually not that person. And again, a classic example is like, nobody is their best self when they're hangry, you know, they're, they're really starving. Like you're not putting forth your best effort into the world as a result. hundred percent. And, and that happens to me in my own life as well. Like during exam periods for example when i know i'm not allowed i'm not able to tend to my nutrition my training my sleep my recovery etc as well and while i'm satisfying you know my let's say cognitive needs by studying lots i'm actually missing out on some of my basic physiological needs and it leads to this sense of incongruence because i'm not my ideal self at that point in time um, so that's just, again, another example of, of how you can move towards incongruence. And I think the important thing that is really important is to actually have some idea of what that ideal self looks like. It doesn't have to be perfect. And this is a really important thing, because when looking at congruence, you're looking at a Venn diagram, two intersecting circles, your self, um, true self or your self image, your idea of yourself. And then your ideal self, so the person that you're really aiming at, they're the two circles. And you want to try to maximize the overlap between the two, but it's never going to be perfect. Okay. If it was, if it was perfect, you, you would effectively be God because you would have attained everything. Okay. It's not going to be perfect, but you want to try to maximize the overlap between the two. And ultimately your ideal should be high enough that it wouldn't permit overlap because the, the other thing is you could have a, a fantastic ideal and have it hundred percent achieved. And like I said, yeah, you have just become God or you could have 
basically no ideal at all. And your ideal is basically whatever you are at the moment. And then you're aiming at nothing. And then you're going, you're not moving forward. So that's not great either. So what you want is that you have some ideal self that you feel would be worth aiming at that if someone else was to achieve, you'd be like, wow, that's a person I, I really, I really look up to. It could be someone that exists. It could be someone that doesn't exist. It could be an amalgamation of multiple different people in the way that they live. But it is really worth giving some thought to that because it helps you to make decisions. It helps you to make health decisions, financial decisions, career decisions, etc. Because if there's something that would take you away from that ideal self, it might take you away from that sense of congruence, that uh, pursuit of self-actualization, and it's probably not great. So start with a general idea and then you can tweak it over time while appreciating that you don't need to have 100% on everything. You know, you don't need to know exactly what you want your salary to be, but you might want to be able to provide for your children, for example. Just have some idea. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to that first episode we did this year in terms of goal setting. Like it sounds like, oh, so foundational, like, oh, it's just goal setting. But like if you actually spend the time to sit down and think, who do you actually want to be? You know, and as we talked about in that episode, I, I think it was, you know, do it in the next five years. Yeah, who, what do you want to do in the next five years? But then also look at it from your deathbed and go, what did I do in my life? Did I actually, was I actually the person that I wanted to be, you know? So going back to that goal setting, really important. But also this kind of stuff helps you understand like why certain societies organize the, themselves the way they are. For example, like a lot of religious societies will basically have God as this like a almost infallible, omnipotent character. And they're willing to overlook certain things that are clearly dichotomous to that. For example, like you can't, like in, in Christianity, you have the concept of free will. They're like, okay, free will is a thing. But then they also have an omnipotent God, right? And if you're omnipotent, that means you know everything right and if you know everything that means you can't have free will because god already knows what you're going to do before you do it right but they're willing to ignore that for the higher ideal that oh this is what godliness looks like this is what you know the perfect overlap of these venn diagrams looks like you know where you know the ideal self is the self right and that's fine but you also see it done in certain other uh, countries. For example, in Britain, right here, like I live in London, we have a constitutional monarchy, okay? And the reason they have that, well, yeah, there is a historical reason. It kind of allowed the separation of God and politics, right? Or this ideal and politics, because you don't have to look to your politician to be the ideal. You kind of take it for granted that your politician is going to have you know, human corruption to an extent. But you look to the queen as the uh, infallible, the ideal, the, the certain thing that's like, oh, they're as close to godliness or the ideal self as possible, right? And that's a really good concept, the separation of those two things in society, because then you actually have a much more orderly way to run politics versus, for example, America, where they deify their like political leaders and they want their political leader to represent this ideal self, you know, and you know, they're humans. Obviously they don't Now, Obviously the queen is also a human, but, or you know, some people think she's a lizard person, but you know, we won't, we won't talk about those. She's a human. So she still falls to these, you know, 
human related issues, fallacies, whatever, but we're still able to kind of dissociate that and go, okay, this is the, the ideal that we're aiming towards. You know, that's why, for example, Canada still have the monarch as that ideal, because again, it serves that function of, oh, this is a higher ideal, you know? Yes, sir. Fantastic. God save the queen. That's, see, again, the queen is supposedly God. She's God's representative on earth, you know? (laughs) Anyway, look, the reason we covered all of that stuff before we actually dig into this discussion is because you kind of need that framework to understand high yield health practices, right? Because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about health management. We're talking about what are the ideal like health practices that you can engage in that are really high yield that actually allow you to get higher and higher on that kind of self-actualization and actually become this ideal self, right? And the way we do that is manifold, as we discussed on that kind of what is health, like what are we actually aiming towards? We're looking at that kind of fully integrated human and we're looking at it from the perspective of we want to maximize the intensity of living to whatever extent we can but also maximize the duration of living you know like we don't want to you know i don't know live like a a hermit and go oh i I can't go out anywhere in case like i get hit by a bus or you know i get sick from a a virus or a pathogen or whatever you want to be able to be resilient and you're able to do the things that you actually enjoy doing but also you don't want to do stuff that's just pleasurable in the moment that then sets you up to die young, right? And obviously you want to be able to live vigorously into your old age. Like, I don't think anybody listening to this is like, oh yeah, I cannot wait till I'm 65 and, you know, I need a a walker. I need, you know, I can't get out of a, a seat. I need someone to wipe my ass. I don't think anyone is in that position where they're like, that's what I want. And I want it to happen as soon as possible. You know, most people are like, you know what? I would rather be a 65 year old that is able to do all the things that they like to do. They're able to go enjoy activities. They're able to walk up a mountain, whatever it is, right? Like they want to be a resilient person for the the vast majority of their life. So what are the health practices that we can engage in to facilitate that? Right. Well, we're going to quickly go over the, the foundational stuff that you know most people are aware of. We talk about it all the time. We're not going to labor the point. We're not going to spend too much time talking about this stuff because you can go back and listen to the fucking first 180 episodes of the podcast and you'll get a lot of this stuff repeated, right? First things first, the diet. It's a foundational health practice. You know, it, it is pretty much one of the foundational health management tools that we have. There's a number of ways that we can, you know, divide this up and think about it. The first things first with all of this, like we need to be eating a calorie appropriate diet, right? And I say calorie appropriate, and that's the term we often use because that's different for everyone. Some people are going to need to lose weight. Some people are going to need to gain weight. Some people are going to need to maintain weight. And I'm just using weight as a proxy because, you know, that tells us a few things in terms of where our calories are at. Um, But ultimately, we want to be eating a calorie appropriate diet for our goals, for our health, etc. Right. And we can use, again, that proxy of weight because weight also does potentially tell us uh, a few things about the overall health of the organism. Now, it's not a fantastic metric, but it does give us a little bit of insight. So we want to eat a calorie appropriate diet that allows us to obtain or maintain a healthy weight, BMI, 
body fat level, waist circumference, whatever kind of anthropometry do you want to use to say, okay, this is the, the general range that people seem to be healthy within, right? Do you have anything to say on calorie appropriateness, Gary? Yeah, I mean, as you said, we've, we've discussed this in many, you know, primary episodes, but there's very clearly calorie appropriateness um, as an important factor at every stage of life. Because uh, very early on in life, it's very clear that, you know, let's say if you're, if you're malnourished, if you're overnourished in the uh, neonatal or infant period, that can have uh, untoward effects later on in life. Similarly, um, if you're obese at any point as a child, it's generally going to uh, lead to, again, untoward effects down the line. Very difficult to reverse obesity if you were obese as a child. Um, similarly, if you're malnourished as a child and you don't have enough nutrition, for example, during cognitive development um, during the process of learning in school, et cetera, that can all compromise your future self. And then we've got the standard things that we always discuss, obesity, obesity-related complications, diabetes, metabolic disease, et cetera, um, that are the big concerns for most of us as adults. Um, but later in life, you know, you do also run into frailty, sarcopenia, et cetera, as being very significant concerns so that's also something that uh, needs to be considered within the, the calorie appropriate framework. Calories that are too low later in life, malnourishment is generally something that is not protective of health. Um, so your ideal really is to maintain a BMI that is roughly within the normal range. Some people will be in the overweight category while still healthy because they have higher levels of muscle mass. Maybe they have better body fat distribution, et cetera. But for the most part, calorie appropriateness is going to correlate with um, weight or weight trajectory over time. So if you're someone who has been, you know, gaining body fat over a number of years and it's gone beyond the point of healthfulness at this point, obviously a calorie appropriate diet for you would be a deficit for at least a period of time and vice versa. If you're someone who's malnourished or very frail, weak, etc. hundred percent. And then on top of that, we want to have sufficient protein, sufficient fiber, sufficient essential fatty acids, and again, we've talked about this stuff before. Again, we won't labor the point, but then also we want to have a diet that you know probably is having 10 to 15% or less of calories from saturated fat because that seems to be protective again long term. And then obviously we want to have sufficient water intake and micronutrients, all of that kind of stuff, right? Again, we're not going to labor the point on that. Most people listening to this, if you've listened to our previous episodes, you know our thoughts around what a good diet should look like, right? But ultimately, we also want to create a diet that is something that you actually enjoy doing and that you can actually integrate it into your life overall and is something that you can see yourself doing for a long period of time, right? And obviously, there's going to be points in time where you know, you're eating in a calorie deficit, for example, and you're like, oh, I don't really see myself eating like this for the next 20 years, that's perfectly fine. I would argue that most people shouldn't be in a calorie deficit for the next 20 years, right? But you want to be setting up the kind of fundamentals or the foundation of your diet in a way that does actually lead to you enjoying and being able to stick to that diet long-term, right? So do you have anything else to add on the diet front, Gary? No, that's good. Yeah, so again, look, we're going through it quickly because we've covered it before, right? And effectively, the same kind of thing applies to training. Training is one of these foundational health habits. Again, we've talked about it ad nauseum. We're not going to go into a deep dive in terms of everything you should do. 
but ideally we want to do some sort of resistance training. We want to do some sort of cardiovascular training. We probably also want to layer on some sort of low level, you know, walking maybe, but some sort of non-exercise activity because that does also contribute to calorie burn for one, but also it in contributes to overall health because for example, you know, like lymph tissue, uh, like we need that kind of contraction of muscles to have that kind of lymphatic drainage. And that's important for immune system function. Like we need the kind of a squishing of cells to kind of have things moving through the body in that kind of interstitial space. Like we want to squish the water out, squish the water back in all that kind of stuff. And, you know, stuff like low level walking does that. And while obviously, you know, cardiovascular training, resistance training does that as well, you know, there's probably some benefit even from a blood glucose management from getting around and moving throughout the day. Right. And do you have anything to say on that, Gary? And, you know, what are the kind of government guidelines or non-government organization guidelines for that? Yeah, so it's the basics that we always come back to, you know, you should be lifting, you should be doing some sort of cardio, and you should be generally in your daily life, you know, or generally active in your daily life. That is what you're looking for. If you're getting weight training somewhere between two to three days per week, hitting all major muscle groups, you're doing a fantastic job. If you're getting 150 to 300 minutes of moderate aerobic exercise per week, or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous aerobic exercise per week, again, you're doing a great job. If you can get your steps up on top of that and generally aim to make active choices like taking the stairs, parking a little further away, et cetera, all of those things are going to be more than enough for satisfying your needs when it comes to exercise. Now, some people may require different doses of exercise and special considerations at different points in life. For example, if you're um, dealing with children, you might need to uh, prioritize fundamental movement skills as a priority when they're quite young, where they're learning how to throw a ball, catch, jump, run, etc. all the basics, um, before moving on to more complex uh, physical training tasks later on. Similarly, if someone is very elderly, their dose of exercise might simply be transfers in and out of bed, transfers up and down off a chair, um, walking and modifying the environment in such a way that you're reducing risk of falls, all those types of things would come under that bracket of, of exercise or um, rehab really on that spectrum. So obviously there's individual considerations, but overall everyone should be doing, if they're concerned about health, some sort of lifting, some sort of cardio and be generally active. And then you're doing a great job. A hundred percent. And then on top of that, I do want to say it because as soon as we say, Oh, you have to do some lifting or you have to do some cardio. Look, realistically, the best thing you can do is find some sort of activities that you enjoy doing yeah. and you can see yourself doing them over a long period of time. Right. And that's really important because there's some activities that you might be like, I actually really enjoy this right now, but it's not something I'm going to be able to do when I'm 90. And if that's the case, for example, you're not going to see many 90 year olds doing fucking boxing, for example, you know, or Muay Thai, you know, so it's like, okay, you might enjoy that now, but at least let's have an idea of what training looks like for you after that, you know, are you setting yourself up now so that you have some longevity in your sport of choice, but also some actual training modalities after exercise, because this is something that we deal with a lot with our coaching, we'll have someone that, you know, they used to play rugby or they used to do fucking, I don't know, uh, MMA or whatever. And now they don't, they're not able to do it anymore. They're older or, you know, they injured or whatever, either way, they're not able to do it anymore. 
and now they don't have good fundamental health practices. They don't have good diet practices. They don't have a consistent training practice because they never built those things while they were prioritizing their their you know sport of choice, right? So while yeah, we want to do stuff in the short term that we enjoy, we also want to set ourselves up for the long term, right? So just keep that in mind um, when you are thinking about this stuff. Because look, you know, cardiovascular training you can pretty much do until you're the day you die, right? Um, you might not be as good, but you can still do it, right? Resistance training for the vast majority of people, you can probably still do that until the day you die. You know, again, probably not going to be your best performance when you're 95 years old. You're not going to be like, yeah, I just hit a new uh, PB 340 kilo deadlift. You're probably not going to be doing that. Um, but you can still be doing resistance training, right? In the low level activities, right? Again, you might not be able to do the boxing that you enjoy or whatever. So keep that in mind, find stuff you love, but also have an eye to the future. Do you have anything else to say on the training front, Gary? Fantastic. Again, the next fundamental health practice, sleep, right? And again, this is both of sufficient duration, but also of sufficient depth or, you know, we could call it quality, right? Now, the issue with discussing sleep is that it's actually pretty hard to discuss the uh, quality aspect. It's actually pretty hard to influence how high quality sleep you get. However, the vast majority of you listening to this have the ability to look after getting sufficient duration, right? Because the vast majority of people they have an ability to decide what time they go to sleep, right? You might have less of an ability to decide what time you wake up at. You know, you might have kids going to school. You might have work commitments, whatever. You're like, oh, I have to get up at 6 a.m. or whatever. But you generally have the ability to decide what time you go to sleep at, right? So that is probably the area that most people need to focus on. They need to get eight hours of sleep as a general rule. We could say seven to nine, but I think most people would need eight hours of sleep to be able to get sufficient quality. And that means eight hours of actual sleep, which probably means you need 30 minutes to an hour of wind down time before you actually go to sleep, right? Like, for example, I know for me, my sleep latency is four minutes, right? <laughs> like all <laughs> the tracking stuff that I have would tell me that as soon as I like go to sleep, I'm like, oh, I'm going to sleep. It takes me four minutes to fall asleep. And my girlfriend will, unfortunately for her, uh, attest to that. She's always like, you just fall asleep all the time so fast, you know? But look, I know that for me, you know? Whereas for you as an individual, it might take you more time to actually wind down. The reason I'm able to fall asleep you know, within four minutes is because, you know, the last 30 minutes before I go to bed, I'm already thinking about sleep. I'm already kind of going, okay, you know, let's start, you know, relaxing a bit more. Let's actually start bringing the heart rate down, bringing the fucking gears in my head, turning, like bringing that down, all that kind of stuff. Right. So for me, I have those practices. I know where I fall in that, but I'm still looking to what time do I need to be asleep at if I need to wake up at this time in the morning. Right. So that is something that people have the ability most times anyway, like obviously, you know, there's going to be exceptions and um, most people have the ability to look after that. 
But the other thing that we want to look at when we're talking about sleep is having some sort of consistent sleep schedule, right? It's not just good enough to be like, oh yeah, I get eight hours of sleep. If those eight hours are, you know, one time it's in the morning, the next time it's the middle of the day, the next time it's in the evening and it's all over the place. We want to have some sort of regularity, some sort of consistency to that sleep schedule. Now again, this is not going to be possible for a lot of people, especially if you do shift work, right? But this is again, going back to this foundational health practice. And it's going to be something that we discuss later on as well, in terms of like environmental screening. But if you're not able to get that consistent sleep schedule, are you okay with the trade-offs for that? Right? Like the who, the HWO, or the, I can't even speak, WHO, the World Health Organization, they categorize, uh, you know, inconsistent sleep schedule or lack of sleep as a carcinogen right? Like it's likely to produce cancer, right? Now, are you getting paid enough to do a sleep schedule that potentially causes you cancer, right? You might not be actually okay with that now that you know that you might be like, oh, Jesus, actually, I don't want to do shift work if it's going to give me cancer, right? Like, for example, again, a lot of people will be like, okay, I'm going to get you to do a job that has you handling, I don't know, uranium, You, you might get cancer from it, right? Would you be like, okay, yeah, I'll just do that for minimum wage. A lot of people would be unhappy doing that for minimum wage so you have to you know calculate that in your job and again we'll talk about that in 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 a moment as well right um and as i said look you can survive a long time without food or exercise okay like those two things you can you can starve for a couple of weeks you know and you can also just not move you know a lot of people do that and but if you don't sleep look you're talking like three to five days before things really get fucking out of whack out of balance you're probably going to have some sort of a psychotic or psychosis going on so look you need your sleep it's foundational and again you might be able to go oh i'm the individual that you know needs five hours of sleep but is that reality or have you just always slept five hours and now you've recalibrated that like a sense of where you are on you know health or whatever as being lower you're just like okay a five out of ten for your actual body for you that feels like a 10 out of 10 because that's the best you've ever felt (laughs) you know you're like oh this is this is it you know when in reality we get sleep sorted and all of a sudden you're like oh that that was actually a five out of ten i was in a bad position i just didn't know it because you had recalibrated your your sense of how you felt so do you mind to say on the sleep side of things gary now, the only final thing is to address sleep pathology if it's present. And that could be sleep specific. For example, you might have obstructive or central sleep apnea where you have episodes of just not breathing during sleep um, or very heavy snoring that's kind of along that spectrum. You can get that addressed. You can do sleep studies and you can get interventions for same, for example, a CPAP machine or something like that. So if that's something that you think you might be dealing with, particularly if you're you know, very, very sleepy throughout the day, despite getting enough hours and people have constantly told you that your breathing sounds really labored when you're sleeping or you're an awful snorer, et cetera. That could be something worth looking for. Additionally, if you you have something like a, you know, a Apple watch, for example, that does some sort of sleep tracking and all you're seeing on your, your sleep is like every five minutes or so you're like, there's a disturbance or every minute disturbance, disturbance, disturbance. And you're never seeing like those deeper sleep stages. Now, like both of us, I think we'd be in agreement that we don't think those watches and tracking stuff or whatever are like perfect or super high quality, but they still give you an idea of what's going on. 
Yeah, and then the other part of that as well is if you've got a particular condition that is impacting your sleep, a, a lot of this is, you know, mental health conditions, for example, if you have depression, anxiety, um, bipolar disorder, other types of mental health conditions, many of them can produce, um, whether it be indirect, for example, anxiety that stops you from being able to wind down and get to sleep, or it might be that you have more pronounced narcolepsy, you're just not able to sleep or whatever. Those types of things can also be addressed um, by addressing either the specifics or potentially those medications that you need. But again, address them if they're an issue because you could be dealing with a lot more than just the depression or the anxiety. It could be that you're also dealing with all of the consequences of sleep deprivation that are potentially making the mental health condition worse along with your physical health. So it can be a bit of a vicious cycle. So um, if you think there's anything that might be affecting your sleep beyond your sleep routine or basic sleep hygiene, do try, try to address that. And that, that also goes to another point, like you could be on a medication for a different thing and that could be interfering with your sleep. Yes. And that is something that you should definitely bring up with your doctor. Don't just be like, oh, that's a, that's a side effect because sleep is kind of, again, a foundational health habit. And I'm not necessarily going to say you could be making the issue worse by not sleeping, but that's something that you and your doctor need to discuss. If you're on a medication that's making you now sleep three hours per night, you're not getting that high quality sleep, you're not getting that recovery, whatever, like that might have implications for the disease that you're getting or the illness that you're getting a medication for and your doctor might be able to you know switch medications or you know prescribe something else or whatever but again sufficient sleep of duration and good depth you know that's that's what we're aiming for right anything else to say on the sleep no sir fantastic next thing then is stress right and this is the the end of the kind of four pillars that most people thought talk about um, and it kind of really sets the stage for all the other stuff which is actually you know relatively quick to go through once we get through these right like you can't burn the candle at both ends i think most people would be aware of this by now like you can't you know be high stressed and then expect to be in good health right like they're generally dichotomous now that's not always the case you can have a really high stress individual that just has perfect health right but generally overly stressed individuals don't live very long or they end up with diseases that limit their ability to be productive you know that you know maybe that's why they were stressed right so we want to have some sort of stress management tools in place and again we've talked about this before we are actually probably going to do a series on stress management because there's a lot to discuss with this and i don't think we've done a series on stress management before but i also want to bring up the fact that there are some very basic tools for stress management. A lot of it, again, goes back to getting good sleep, exercising, you know, uh, good nutrition. And while, yeah, we can cover those things, there are still further things that we can do. Meditation is one thing that potentially can help with stress management. Now, again, I know everyone's a little bit hesitant to do meditation, although I think that is changing these days, at least around the discussions online. Um, but also we can do some sort of mindfulness, right? Um, and again, we're not going to get too deep in the weeds in terms of how to actually put that stuff in play, because we'll probably talk about that in future. Um, but I do want to also say that stress management isn't just like you know, breathing techniques and journaling and all of this kind of stuff that feels a little bit uh, woo woo or whatever, right? Like there is still more to it right like for example in training we often talk about auto regulation you know how do you actually change the stressor you're about to put on your body based on the stressors that have already been put on your body right or you know, i suppose your recovery from those stressors like you have a poor night of sleep 
oh, we're going to auto-regulate the training a little bit. We're going to dial down the intensity today or the, the volume or whatever, right? And to a large extent, you can also do that stuff in your life. Now, certain things are not going to lend themselves to that. Certain other things are going to lend themselves to that, right? But ultimately, we want to have some sort of auto-regulation practice in our stress management. We want to dial things up when we have the capacity to deal with it and then try to dial things down when we're not able to deal with it, right? And a good way to kind of think about this is, do you have any hobbies, right? Do you have any hobbies that actually reduce your stress? Because the vast majority of people in this day and age don't have hobbies, you know, like everyone likes to think they're unique and an individual or whatever. And then you ask them what they do and they go, oh, I do my job, do whatever, nine to five, nine to six. And then I go home and watch Netflix. I'm like, you're not a unique individual if you do the exact same thing that everyone else is doing, right? So we want to have some sort of hobbies, especially ones that really just, you know, bring your stress level down. I don't care, is it painting, playing chess, reading books, whatever it is. Ideally, we want to have some sort of hobby that isn't a physical practice as well, you know, because this is something that uh, a lot of, you know, health and fitness individuals will find themselves falling into the trap of where they're like, oh, you know, resistance training is my hobby. You know, and it's like, okay, that's not really a hobby, right? Like it's actually producing more stress on your body. And while we would say it's a, a nice hormetic stressor, you know, it's, it's helping you adapt to stress in the long term and it's making you more resilient. Like it's still not something that's completely therapeutic, right? So we want to have some sort of hobbies. And again, ideally hobbies outside of, watching netflix to 2 a.m in the morning right because that's just that's not a hobby first of all you know and it's probably increasing your stress and it's probably reducing your sleep right do you have anything to say on the stress topic especially in terms of you know thinking about this longer term when you're doing that kind of career planning and different things like that Gary? yeah i think this is something that should be kind of fitting into your longer term ideal that we discussed previously when we discussed congruence and an example of that would be something like choosing a career based on whether or not it's permissive of other healthful practices or the general management of stress. So for example, um, I'm a medical student, I'll have to choose a particular medical specialty or training pathway to go down. If I was to pick surgery, um, which is probably what I'm most interested in, huge trade-offs in um, lifestyle, huge trade-offs in the ability to be able to get to the gym, to have free time, to see your kids, your partner, husband, wife, etc. Not really the best if you're trying to maintain work-life balance, so to speak. However, if you were to pick a specialty like uh, GP or dermatology or other fields, you might be able to have a much better lifestyle and you could be getting as much as 20 to 40 hours back in your week, which could be spent doing something productive or absolutely nothing. You know, it could be your key to stress management and that it's just gardening, reading books, um, watching the football, whatever it happens to be. So long-term, you need to be asking yourself those questions. And that's what I ask myself as well, because, you know, when in, in younger years, I would have thought that, oh, I'll, I'll just work 100 hours a week forever. But then as you begin to mature a bit, you think, yeah, you know what? It, it would be great to not be stressed all the time. That might be nice. So that's something that, might be within your value system now with that said you actually mightn't want to prioritize that you mightn't be, you might be a, an elon musk type character who just says no i actually want to work and dedicate my whole life to a single mission 
Um, and that's not necessarily related to family or personal life. It's solely related to business or career progression. And some people do that. The vast majority of people that do dedicate themselves to goals like that tend to be men. Um, and you might be within that camp. But uh, yeah, just choose wisely and, and do keep it in mind when you're planning for the future. Hmm. Now, I actually think just based on the length of this episode and how long we've been going, I think we'll cover the psychosocial and spiritual stuff now. And then we'll actually yep. come back in the next episode and we'll we'll cover the rest of the stuff just because I know like these podcasts can you know, they can end up being quite long and you're kind of like, okay, what, what, what were they talking about again? But anyway, we'll cover the psychosocial and spiritual stuff because I think this is really important. And then it kind of, again, will allow us to set the scene for the, the rest of the stuff we want to discuss, right? So when we're talking about this as a foundational health management practice, habit, tool, whatever, it kind of sounds a little bit uh, woo-woo, right? Like when you say psychosocial, like what does that even mean? And then you say spiritual, people are like, um, I don't want to be, you know, I grew up in a Christian country or whatever, but I wouldn't consider myself Christian. So I don't really have a spiritual practice. Right. But what are your thoughts here, Gary, in terms of the psychosocial and spiritual stuff? Like how does that fall into the realm of, you know, a uh, health management tool or a health management habit practice, whatever you want to call this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it can seem like it's not a very practical recommendation. And to be honest, we're not even making hard recommendations here because you know, some of it is, is very much personal. Obviously, the religious and the spiritual is very much a, a personal endeavor. And it might be something that's just not an option for you based on previous experiences or whatever. Or it might be something that you've been toying around with. Or you might already be a very devout, faithful Catholic or Muslim or Hindu or whatever it happens to be. And the, the important thing here is that many people actually aren't aware that like I'll come back to broader psychosocial stuff, but really religiosity and spirituality are very much intrinsically linked with health. And what you often see is that when there's some sort of insult to kind of like the needs that we were talking earlier, when there's some sort of insult to your health, um, religiosity seems to become more important um, or it seems to maybe strengthen um, at that point in time. For example, when people are ill, when people are contemplating mortality, you tend to see them pray even though they might never have prayed before, or they might be asking deeper questions about what happens after life, etc. Similarly, when people have other shocks to the system, like people who have gone to war, for example, you see it in the US military post 2001, where a lot of people who would have went off to war and dealt with severe trauma, they had a higher probability of coming back and being more practicing uh, religious individuals, praying either pr praying privately and attending religious services. So there's kind of that back and forth there where the re religiosity and spirituality can be protective in the sense that you have lower rates of depression, lower rates of suicidality, especially in countries where you have um, a lot of religious diversity, which might sound a little bit kind of confusing at first, but when you think about it, if you have a lot of religious diversity, you're probably realistically living in a country um, at least in the West, that is primarily secular and atheistic. So it means that you've kind of had to go through some battles to either maintain your faith or to make the conscious decision to practice your faith. So they're probably more faithful individuals than if someone is in a country that's already, where you basically have enforced religion, then it might be a very much a top-down thing and not something that they've come to or preserved of their own accord. So you actually see that in countries like that with religious diversity, you end up with lower rates of depression, lower rates of suicidality in people who are 
um, religious or even just spiritual in some sense. So it does play an important role, but you can look broader beyond that and ask yourself, what might be some of the elements of religiosity, let's say, that are that are transferable to the atheist or questions beyond um, religion? And you can see that clearly the community is a huge one, you know, um, having a support network, community, someone that you can talk to, people that will support you in your time of need, very important. You know, an example of this would be if you look at the kind of contrast or similarities between um, confiding in a priest or confession or similar practices, a lot of that can be very similar in nature to the way in which a lot of people in the West would deal with their therapists. You know, a lot of people have therapists and they'll deal with them in similar manners without the, the frills of religion. Um, so there's, there's, a support, there's elements of support and community that you can see within religiosity that also apply uh, to broader life. You know, you have to question your relationships with your family, um, with your friends. Do you have those support systems in play both proactively in the sense that they're preserving your mental and physical health um, long term, but also reactively in the sense that if anything was to happen to you, do you have that support network in place? So that's very much related to psychosocial considerations. Obviously within psychosocial as well, you've got, you know, living a life that is contributing to your psychological well-being and social well-being. And that's very much related to things we've discussed already in the podcast, but also things we'll discuss after in the next episode, such as not doing drugs, for example. Um, do you feel connected to the people around you? Do you feel like they value you, you value them? Is there that kind of mutual benefit that you're getting from those relationships? And I suppose something that's a kind of a bigger question then that is very difficult if you're not religious is, you know, what's, what's the purpose of life and, and what are we here for? What are we aiming at? That can be really difficult. And you see that emerge a lot right now with um, questions of existential risk. For example, um, the climate uh, emergency or climate crisis, which people will refer to. You can see that a lot of people have this kind of sense of impending doom as if the world is gonna end in the next 10 years because of the climate. And some people find, actually find almost a religious sense of meaning in that and that they'll dedicate themselves to it. Um, or it might be that they feel that there's political threats to their sense of meaning and purpose in the world and they'll dedicate themselves to that. So overall, we have a need for some sort of sense of meaning, some sense of purpose. Where you get that from is not something we can prescribe to you, but it's still something you need to be thinking about actively particularly given the relationship between the psychosocial, the religious slash spiritual, and then the, the more kind of hard things in the real world, like your community, family, friends, relationships, et cetera. Yeah. Like I always think the psychosocial and spiritual are intrinsically connected, you know, mm -hmm. it's basically just a continuation because when we look at it, we can look at it from the individual perspective. And that's realistically what we're going to look at it through because that's what we're here to talk about. We're talking about what you do as an individual, right? So when we're talking about that individual perspective, yeah, psychosocial, that's generally the term we're using to talk about this stuff. Like what is your, uh, you know, relationship, we'll say with yourself, first of all, like do you hold yourself in high self-esteem? Do you actually feel like you are someone that's worthy of love? You know, like that kind of stuff, right? We're talking about that, but then we're talking about, okay, what's your connection with others? Like your immediate people around you your family your friends your significant other right all of that kind of stuff right 
And then we're like, okay, what's your community like, the broader community that you're in? For example, the two of us do jujitsu. I'm like, okay, I'm part of that jujitsu community, right? Like I'm part of a, you know, a club, Gracie Baja, and Gracie Baja Oval in uh, London. But I know I can go to, you know, hundreds of places around the world and go into a Gracie Baja club and be like, oh, I'm still connected to that community, you know? And obviously you can do that in Brazilian jiu-jitsu in general. You can do that in a lot of sports in general where you're like, okay, I, I do this sport. I'm now part of this community worldwide in my country, et cetera, right? So you look at it in terms of the communities that you're in. Are you connected? Are you an integral part of those communities? Because we're using that as a proxy for you being a well-adjusted human, right? Now, it's not always perfect. Like you can be a really integral part of a community or your family or whatever and still be dealing with, you know, psychosocial or psychological issues you could be you know really depressed or whatever but oftentimes if you see yourself as a core component of you know a family of a community and whatever you end up having better outcomes from dealing with those diseases right or those issues right but even beyond that community like your broader impact on society as a whole like do you see yourself as having meaning purpose and a role to play in society right and then we go beyond that and it's like okay well your role in the world right because the world is not just one homogenous society it's you know multiple societies right we're not just a, a global like uni uni society right we have different societies there you know different in, in people's cultures and different things like that right and then we look at our place in the overall universe you can be like okay just think of it from a purely scientific perspective in terms of the role of earth in the the galaxy and in the universe as a whole right and then you can look at it beyond that and be like okay well what's the like where does that end like is it just all just universe is it just that is there something beyond that is there a, a god is there multiple deities like what's going on there right and you have to have some sort of connection that kind of goes through all of those right and again you can just say you don't have a connection to god or a deity or whatever but generally that's not the case because even if you have a scientific view like i would be more in line with the the religious views of you know spinoza for example right and i would believe that there is something out there and it's all the universe itself is some sort of godlike deity like we're all interconnected but you can just say oh i just have a scientific view of this stuff and it's just a universe we're just going to die go back to atoms see you later right and like that might work for you but generally if you follow those people you look at those people they're very nihilistic they have very uh poor view of the world they don't act in the world like someone that is fully integrated right they generally don't have uh, healthy family relationships they don't have like a, a healthy relationship with themselves right so we want to avoid that well you might have those views you could look at that and go, these views are not productive to being a healthful human, right? So we want to look at it more so than just looking at the, oh, you know, are you uh, psychosocially connected? Are you psychosocially secure? Like, do you have good mental health? Do you have like a connection in the community with other people? Do you talk to other people? Or at least as I said earlier on, like it seems to be that fundamental unit is two people. You need to have that back and forth. Like humans are social creatures. Like we can look at that in a very like scientific perspective, but I think that's not fully integrated into the world that we actually live in. But what are your thoughts there, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think that um, 
an excessive I think I think that sometimes having an excessively um, material worldview especially one that's quite arrogant in the sense that you can kind of explain everything and that everything is within your control and your powers of explanation etc um, is potentially detrimental to health I think particularly mental health and in some cases physical health as well um, I think that you know the kind of god of Spinoza perspective that you shared is one that I think a lot of more in pe integrated people with a scientific worldview um, would hold. And I think that that is something that is, is quite a mature perspective that is somewhat protective against the nihilistic worldview. Some people end up falling into that hole of nihilism along with their scientific worldview, and that can get a little bit messy. Um, it's hard to tell people what they should believe, and we're not going to, to do that. We have our individual beliefs. And uh, yeah, but I think that ideally, if you can find a reason to live, some sort of meaning and purpose and connection with the individuals, the society, the societies and the world and universe around you, I think that uh, that's going to be a positive thing. Hmm. And as I said, like this is a bit of a, a woo woo kind of thing, because this is such a deep discussion right? Neither you or I are psychologists, so we can't really dive deep on that, right? Neither you or I are, you know, fucking, I don't know, thought leaders in religion, so <laughs> we can't dive deep on that. But this is something that's clearly integral to being a healthy human, right? Both in terms of how you view yourself, how you look after yourself, you know? For example, again, like you could look at something like a, what's it, the seven-day Adventists, you know, in, in America, where they're like, oh, like they view their body as a temple, you know, it's like my body is a temple, so they don't want to pollute it with different things that they view as being pollutants to that. For example, I don't, I don't think they uh, drink coffee, right? Because they're like, oh, that's, a, that's something that's bad for humans, right? And they have great health as a result of that. And that's obviously due to the religious practices that they engage in. But then we look at other religions or other communities or whatever, and they seem to have health protective things. Like, for example, you could join, I don't know, the Freemasons, for example. I know everyone knows, I was like, what the fuck is a Freemason? But the Freemasons, they literally just do charity work, right? Like, that's basically the, the goal of the Freemasons. Now, the Freemasons also require you to believe in a god, right? So this is a little bit confounded. Like you're not allowed to become a Freemason unless you believe in a singular God. I actually, no, I think you can be polytheistic. I'm not actually sure, but you have to believe in a higher deity. So this is, this is a bit confounded, but they seem to have better health, you know, by focusing on, you know, bettering their community, being a part of the community themselves, like they're, they're Freemasons themselves. And then also, you know, giving back to society through their charity work, right? So you don't have to join an organized religion to have these kind of psychosocial and spiritual benefits, these health benefits from having a psychosocial and spiritual, you know, integration. Um, like you can get it elsewhere, you know? We just want to avoid that kind of nihilistic, uh, like who cares what I do? I shouldn't even look after myself, like fall into the depths of depression as a result of not having an integrated self and maybe you can speak to this gary because this is something you kind of dealt with not necessarily this topic but also just you know the the depression side of things falling into that nihilistic world view um but maybe you don't want to talk about it and after that wrap up the podcast <laughs> yeah we can do it maybe in the next episode um just because my house is getting loud there's a dog a mother everything around so um yes 
this has been a productive episode. Hopefully you've learned a lot. We will cover a lot more in the next episode um, on some of the protective factors for your health long-term um, and finish off maybe some of this discussion about some of the psychological elements. Now, with that said, if you are looking for help with your fitness, of course, we do have coaching spaces available. You can work with us. You can work with myself, Patty, Shane, Dean, Nicola, or Brian. I almost forgot Brian. Sorry, Brian. Uh, <laughs> up to the triage events, you know? Yeah. So you can uh, work with any member of our team. We all have coaching spaces available, full training and nutrition or nutrition only. And uh, yeah, you can get in touch. The information is going to be in the description box below. Furthermore, just to note, Spotify do actually have ratings available now. So if you'd like to leave a rating on the podcast, do that there. If you listen elsewhere, that would be fantastic too. We do also have a YouTube channel where we share snippets of the podcast. So subscribe and you won't have to listen to the full episode all of the time. We also have a newsletter or email list, which you can subscribe to and get exclusive content. So do subscribe to that as well and join the Triage Method community, which is our Facebook group. And finally, if you're a coach, of course, we recommend that you join the Triage Method Coaches Corner to support your education. And if you don't want to join that, at least give us a follow on Instagram and keep up with everything that we're doing. Fantastic. Anyway, I have nothing else to say. So uh, enjoy, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your your life if you don't ever listen again. (laughs) Uh, Goodbye.